0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. June 28, 2021. The Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation continues to be a top priority for the Suffolk County Police Department. The department has detectives who are solely dedicated to this investigation, and our department is closely working. With both the Sulphur County District Attorney's Office and with the FBI, the Sulphur County Police Department does not comment on suspects in criminal investigations. Statement of the Sulphur County Police Department Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Episode 26, Second Cast, Lost Girls, Mystery Continues. Welcome back, Murder Shelf bookies. I am Jill, one half of our podcast host team. Tara will be back, I promise you, I know it seems like forever. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life, true crime book club-turned-podcast. While we do the heavy lifting, we hope that you will read along with us. We like to summarize each book we pull off our murder shelf, following along the author's footsteps, and of course, giving our analysis and opinions. You can Anticipate three episodes for each book. The first two going through the book, and our third, which we dubbed Second Cast, where we cast a wide net examining topics and threads that we didn't get to cover in the first episodes. We hope you are out enjoying the summer and thank you for listening and downloading. We also appreciate the five star reviews, they truly make a difference in growing the podcast. And we'd like to give a shout out to our murder bookies in Maine. You are all ears. Oh, and in India, we are so glad that you're listening in. That blows our minds that our voices and stories carry that far. We have murder bookies all over the world and it continues to amaze us. Your support keeps us going. So, very quick, this episode is late and once again the fates have conspired against us. My sister has been ill for a while and was hospitalized and had surgery. Driving back and forth and dealing with all of this was trying, as, uh, as you can imagine. She is on the mend now, but isn't completely out of the woods. Now, I take this podcast very seriously, and little gets between me and my murder bookies. But family, life and death, these are just things that have to be dealt with. I do not take you for granted, ever. Thank you for bearing with me. Now, into second cast, Lost Girls, the mystery continues. So Robert Colker reissued Lost Girls with an update, and we're going to begin there. Aftermath, 2020. Mary Gilbert hated Robert Colker's book Lost Girls and vowed never to speak to him again. And this didn't come as quite a shock. She had been volatile, guarded, going hot and cold throughout the process, and really sought conflict, not peace. Nevertheless. Mary Gilbert was a core presence in the year he followed the people at the heart of his stories about these women, their families, and their friends. But what happened next did surprise him. Mary's third daughter, Sarah, was considered the reliable one. It was Sarah who had parented the other kids when Mary was working. Holker observed a quiet young woman who took notes for the family with an incredible eye for detail. Only later did Culper learn Sarah had been molested by Mary's boyfriend during a time when Shannon was in foster care. Seething with resentment and anguish over her experience, Sarah's feelings intensified as she got older. At 16, she dropped out of school and moved in with the 22-year-old drug dealer boyfriend, Manny. Their son, Hayden, was born in 2009. And afterwards, their relationship was on and off, with Manny in jail for drugs, while Sarah was in shelters for victims of domestic violence. By the time Shannon disappeared, Sarah was growing more dependent on the family, especially Mary, for her emotional support. When the Gilgo Beach bodies were discovered, Sarah became more fragile psychologically. Psychiatrist Alexander Bardi saw Sarah, confirming she had been re traumatized. Now, Sarah's suppressed rage ignited, and this led to her first serious mental breakdown. So, in late 2013, while watching the American Music Awards, Sarah became delusional, wholly believing that she and Shannon, who she swore was still alive, had co-written several hit songs by Beyoncé and Jay-Z. This escalated into her developing more serious delusions where people she loved became possessed by demons. Now, Sarah alone could determine if one was possessed by looking into one's eyes. This was her duty to defeat the evil gods that occasionally took the form of her mother and sisters. Now, in 2014, because of these delusions, Sarah was hospitalized several times, eventually being transferred to the Rockland Psychiatric Center, where she stayed through December. Much of 2014 was spent in psychiatric facilities. Diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, she began court-ordered treatments. And this did stabilize her throughout most of 2015, enough to stay out of hospitals. However, Sarah began skipping her prescribed medications, and instead she took illegal drugs. And soon, the demons were back. By February 16, 2016, with her son at home, Sarah drowned the family dog, and then called Mary to blame her for the dog's death. All right, living just a few minutes away, Mary rushed over, secured her grandson, and then called the police. And Sarah was taken to another psychiatric center. The court this time determined that Hayden would remain in Mary's care for the time being. Released from the hospital, Sarah was struggling to support herself and blaming all of this on Mary and the money she had been receiving to care for Hayden, that had been cut. She's also angry at Mary for taking her son away and continued to refuse to take her medication, which is never, never a good idea. In early July, she actually overdosed and was in a coma. Now, once she recovered from that and she went back home, Sarah again went off her medication and started believing that the coffee that Mary was bringing her was poisoned. On July 23rd, 2016, Sarah texted Cherie that she was hearing voices again, and Cherie advised her to call 911 or at least call mom. Not wanting to be hospitalized again, Sarah called Mary, who of course came right over. When Mary arrived, Sarah asked her if she was an evil god. Whether or not Mary agreed or or denied, that isn't really clear but Sarah struck Mary with a 15-inch kitchen knife that she had hidden under the sofa pillow. Mary tried to stand, told her to stop, tried to defend herself, but Sarah continued, repeatedly aiming for Mary's heart, lungs, midsection, determined to kill the evil god. Unaware, Cherie is wondering why her mom isn't answering her phone as Sarah is picking up the fire extinguisher that she had placed nearby, striking Mary several times, certain that she's still alive and dangerous. Then she stabbed Mary in the neck, possibly trying to decapitate her, then stripped Mary naked, removing all of her jewelry. Arriving at the apartment with Mary's boyfriend Elroy, Cherie couldn't get inside, and realized that something was really terribly, terribly wrong. The police arrived about one forty five PM and gaining access to the apartment, when the police did find Sarah, she said, I'm under arrest. Mary Gilbert was pronounced dead. Mary Gilbert, Shannon's mom, her key supporter, this activist was gone, and she'd been murdered by her own daughter. Sarah was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. You may remember John Ray, who was the Gilbert family attorney, He represented Sarah, and he immediately sought a psychiatric evaluation in the immediate days following her mother's death. Now, Sarah is terribly afraid of psychiatric institutions, so she was begging the court, can can we do this from jail? And Judge Matthew Parker, who's very sympathetic to Mary's state of mind, did promise that she would have to go for the evaluation, but she would be returned to jail but any request for bail was promptly denied. No. Sarah's murder trial would begin in the spring of 2017. For Sarah, rape, pled, innocent due to mental disease and defect. It seemed to be a pretty clear case of innocence by reason of insanity. Sarah had been off her meds for about eight weeks at that point and had a documented severe mental illness. The medical examiner had counted 227 wounds on the body. Many of them were defensive. So these were not the actions of a rational person. Assistant District Attorney Emanuel Niji he disagreed. And he said that, listen, for years, Sarah had walked her son to school, paid her bills while her illness was at its peak, and she clearly knew right from wrong. This was a crime of passion. Mary had been an absentee parent. She had brought an abuser into their home, failed to protect her daughter, then had taken her son away from her. Sarah's anger had finally boiled over. She had planned the murder in advance, hiding the knife under the pillow, positioned the fire extinguisher, ready to bludgeon her mother. So those are the two competing points of view. At the trial, more details came out about what happened on the day of Mary's death. Mr. Meechie explained the immediate scene when Mary was discovered. When Mary's boyfriend, Elroy Schulterbrandt and Sherry couldn't reach Mary, they called the police to conduct a welfare check. When Sherry and Elroy arrived at the home, when she tried to get inside, while Elroy peered into the living room window, and he cried out, Oh, oh my God, oh my God! Because he saw the woman he loved lying in a pool of blood. Cherie yells back What what happened? I can't look, what happened? And Elroy answered through sobs your, your mother's in there all bloody. So Cherie's screams turned into cries of horror, and the jury learns all of this part of the story from the body cams of the Ellenville police officers, Antonio Bell and Alba Gonzalez, which were played by the prosecution. When they came upon Sarah, she was hiding in the bathtub, stating, I killed my mom. Stevie Smith, Mary's youngest daughter, testified that her sister was jealous of the relationship between Stevie and their mother. She believed Sarah planned to kill her too, saying, quote, I believe her main focus was our mom, I do. If she could have got to me, yes, I believe she would have killed me too, end quote. Stevie held nothing back, saying her sister was dangerous, an angry drug abuser who had assaulted her mother before and was upset with both of them, but Mary especially because her mother had been given custody of Sarah's son. At trial in his opening statement, defense attorney John Ray began saying that his client is absolutely insane. He pointed to dozens of passages in a journal that Sarah kept. In which she repeatedly called Stevie and her mother demons, referring to them, quote, as husband and wife, end quote. In one entry, Sarah wrote, quote, Mom and Stevie, husband and wife, all you did was fucking up your life. Now demons have the right to fuck up your life. This will be concluded at five tonight, end quote. The defense explained that Sarah believed her mother, who practiced witchcraft, cast spells, and recited incantations, was possessed by supernatural powers. When Mary Gilbert wouldn't deny that she was an evil god, Sarah, who was without question off her psychiatric meds and deteriorating mentally, began the attack on Mary, because, quote, the demon wouldn't die. Then she smashed the demon's face and tried to drown the demon with foam. Sarah stripped her mother's body because quote, clothes was giving her power. End quote. Finally, she attempted to cut off the demon's head. check finally, finally killed it. Ray explained his client was hallucinating and hearing voices, which are classic characteristics of schizophrenia. At the time, Sarah repeated over and over, "So, so, so, team, team, team," as she was trying to kill the demon. After this description, Ray asked the jurors, many of whom were visibly uncomfortable, whether Sarah Gilbert seemed like someone responsible for her actions. Sarah herself took the stand, testifying, quote, My intention was to kill my mom. She's evil, end quote. And she totally blamed Mary because it was all her fault. She said that Mary got what she deserved. Sarah was also questioned about an earlier drowning of her dog, and she insisted that she thought the puppy was the rapper Eminem. When Prosecutor Najee asked Sarah if she knew being arrested was a consequence of killing the dog, she responded that she really didn't know, but she acknowledged that she had deliberately lied to them, telling them the puppy ran away. So this is evidence that Sarah knew she had done something wrong and was trying to avoid punishment which is the baseline for the insanity defense. Basically, under the law, if a defendant can recognize right and wrong, she's not insane, and she can be found competent, and thus can be found guilty of a crime. Another witness who testified was Emmanuel Manny Martinez, the father of Sarah's son. During a court break, Martinez told the reporter Ariel Zangla of the Daily Freedman, that he left Gilbert because she threatened to kill him in his sleep. Quote, she needs help. The girl's crazy. End quote. John Ray also called the psychiatrist I mentioned before, Alexander Barty, who had examined Sarah. And again, Dr. Barty confirmed the diagnosis of schizophrenia, saying that if Sarah is not malingering, she's not making up symptoms. He explained that schizophrenia manifests with positive and negative symptoms. And that in Sarah's case, the negative symptom was her inability to express emotion, which is kind of why she was kind of robotic this whole time. And then helps to explain much of her emotionless reaction to her mother's death, the gravity of the situation, and the horror of the murder itself. It was Dr. Bordy's opinion that Sarah, quote, believes she was killing a demon, end quote, when she stabbed her mother, knowing she was a demon by her eyes turning black. Now, Sarah has no character witness to speak on her behalf. Her sister, Cherie, was too devastated to testify, and Stevie Smith, actually, as I told you, testified for the prosecution. Stevie called her sister wicked in the letter, and that, quote, Sarah had tormented and belittled their mother for years before she killed her. The way she took my mom out of this world is beyond human. This is not the result of mental illness. This is the result of long-term hate and not a mental breakdown, end quote. In closing arguments, John Ray tried to present Sarah's background as a mitigating factor. He said, We know she was raised in one of the worst families this country has ever had in its bosom, end quote referring to the sexual abuse Sarah had suffered at the hands of Mary's boyfriend, that Shannon Gilbert was a sex worker with Mary's blessing, and that Mary practiced black magic, feeding into Sarah's delusions that her mother was a demon. He called on the jurors to recall Sarah's own words when she spoke of hearing voices, her dead sister Shannon still being alive, and insisting her mother was alive even as she told police that she had killed her. While being interviewed by the police, Sarah repeatedly talked about the auditory and visual hallucinations she was experiencing. John Way urged them to recall Sarah's many delusions having to do with being a songwriter for Beyonce, her connection with Eminem, and that she was known as legendary in the music industry. Right? Clearly, John Ray felt Sarah Gilbert was innocent by reason of mental disease and defect. In closing arguments, the prosecution reminded the jury that Sarah Gilbert was capable of caring for herself and her son, shopped, paid bills, drove, and generally tended to life like everybody else. Mr. Niji also pointed out that Sarah had admitted she put the knife and the fire extinguisher in the living room prior to her mother coming over because she planned to kill Mary. The jury gets the case and they deliberated about 20 minutes before Judge Donald Williams had to adjourn that day because of a personal matter. The next day, deliberations resumed, with the jury asking for a readback of some testimony. Later, juror K.B. Collins said that the jurors had sifted through reams of evidence, including Sarah's records from her various commitments to psychiatric facilities, crime scene photos, recordings from the body camps of police, Who arrested Sarah, telephone conversations between Sarah and her sisters while she was in the Ulster County jail. Ultimately, the eight woman four man jury returned its verdicts on that full day of deliberation. They found Sarah guilty. One juror told the press that, quote, we feel she has mental illness, but that she was also aware of what she was doing. There's no doubt everyone agreed that there was mental illness. End quote. Another juror, Sarah Mazzella, said, quote, I think she does have a mental illness. She wasn't faking that. End quote. Mazzella and the others, however, said they thought that Gilbert's drug abuse exacerbated her psychiatric issues. Yeah, I have to agree with that. At the sentencing hearing, the prosecutor called for the maximum sentence, saying Gilbert, quote, Wove a tangled web when she began using drugs as a young teen, and this led everyone into believing drug behavior was mental illness. End quote. Mr. Wright asked Judge Donald Williams to show Sarah Gilbert mercy, saying the circumstances surrounding the perversion of this girl's soul, her mind, her heart, should strike a chord in the court's heart. Sarah was stone-faced and when asked if she wanted to address the court, she cried briefly and asked for mercy. As Patricia Doxey reported in the Daily Freedman, Judge Williams was very firm in his conviction that Sarah Gilbert's act of murder was, quote, not only intentional, but premeditated and planned. I will never be able to put out of my mind the comments your sister and your attorney, quoting them, if you are afforded the opportunity, you will kill again. He went on. This court will not permit or contribute to that terrible situation happening again, he said, calling the sentence not an act of punishment, but motivated by an overwhelming desire to protect other people by taking her off the streets. Following the sentencing, the district attorney's office dropped charges that were pending because she killed the puppy. Juror Barbara Hyde attended the sentencing hearing wanting closure. Hyde agreed with the sentence Judge William handed down and was glad that the judge said he pushed to make certain that Sarah got the mental health treatment she desperately needed. However, Hyde did not believe she should be released from prison, and John White is appealing the decision. Mary Gilbert wrote this poem for Shannon. I hold onto nothing but my nightmares That one day I can finally leave this place I hold on to nothing but my dreams, that one day, both of us will meet again. What a tragic ending for a woman who championed her daughter in death, perhaps more effectively than she had when Shannon was alive, becoming a true mother that she always wanted to be, only to be murdered so horribly by another daughter who she was trying to help so much. Just say a horrible thing, I cannot imagine. What Cherie and Stevie, Mary's remaining daughters, must have gone through during this whole nightmare, they lost a sister, a mother, and another sister who committed the murder. In her final interview, Mary told People magazine, quote, It is not easy, and I have to do what I need to do for Shannon and the rest of the family. Nothing will bring any of us peace, because none of it will ever bring her back. Okay, I do want to say this about Sarah and schizophrenia. There are really strong negative myths in our society about schizophrenia, and Sarah's case feeds many of these misconceptions. So, fundamental fact. People with mental illness are no more likely to commit violent crimes than anyone else, and the same is true of schizophrenics, unless they happen to be criminals prior to becoming ill. Because this disease is a late onset, it's usually not until the teens, 20s, some cases into the 30s before it manifests. Being on drugs or alcohol can certainly contribute to schizophrenia, engaging in criminal behavior if they've been a criminal. But that's true of anybody, not just people with this disease. And this was unfortunately true of Sarah, who was using illicit drugs and had engaged in criminal behavior. She was, unfortunately, at risk. As people who follow true crime, we hear more about crimes committed by the mentally ill than most. I'm hypothesizing. I believe that we have a greater responsibility to know the facts and be educated so we do not fall prey to stereotyping. When crimes such as this are highly publicized, and they really are today with this 24-hour news cycle on social media, people react by blaming the mental illness which may not actually play a role in criminal behavior. All right, to back up my statement, I will briefly cite a fairly recent study. It's from 2019, because you know I love research, which explains trends in public perception of violence and support for coercive treatment. That is like involuntary forcing someone into a treatment program. And this spans a 22-year period of using data from previous studies that have been done. So, this was conducted by Bernice A. Percosolito, Bianca Menanga, and John Monahan, and it was published in Health Affairs. What they confirm is over 60% of respondents saw schizophrenics as possibly being dangerous to others. 44 to 59% supported or strongly supported coercive treatment for them. 68% saw people with alcohol dependency as dangerous to others, with 26 to 38% or strong supporting coercion, just under 30% were concerned that people with depression might be dangerous. And astonishingly, for those with non-clinical, simple daily troubles, 20% saw them as potentially dangerous, just having your normal daily troubles. That's like normal stuff. 20% could be dangerous. So, as this study clearly confirms, it's one thing to involuntarily hospitalize, let's say, a schizophrenic who's hearing homicidal or suicidal voices, because that's for his or her own safety as well as our security. Listen, I get that. But what is important, and this research points this out, is that when people are respected and included in a fair decision-making process— and when they're accorded what is called procedural justice, their perceptions of being coerced into the hospital is greatly reduced, and this benefits them, the families, and the medical staff. There is a huge distinction from legally ordering preventive detention in a mental hospital or in a mandatory treatment program in the community for a person whose only disorder is that they're experiencing daily troubles whose mental health issues do not signify danger of any type, or whose danger to self or to others may be derived entirely from social rather than psychiatric causes. This study recognized, and we wholeheartedly agree with that, someone who makes you socially uncomfortable is not necessarily mentally ill. In fact, it could be you who's actually having the difficulty. So keep that in mind. And we call for a return to a more permissive general tolerance in our society. As a podcast, we regularly call for improvement in our mental health laws, and we stand by this now. We just as badly need to balance better laws with better care, better treatment, with improved agitation. So when we hear of someone mentally ill committing some terrible crime, we cannot generalize this to. All people with mental illness. Because we do not regularly hear about all people with mental disorders who are not committing terrible crimes. We just don't hear that. It's not how our news and social media work, nor is it how our brains actually process information, unfortunately. So remind yourself of that and do not let a single event become a representative summation of an entire group of people. That is what we call prejudice or bigotry or bias, right? We can improve the laws and at the same time improve our society's perceptions and reduce the stigma as well. We can welcome you go. I believe this. I truly do. And rant is over and I will get back to Lost Girls for you. But you know how passionately I feel about this stuff. Okay. Now, to do a thorough update on this case, we have to take a bit a step back in time to Shannon's autopsy, which you may recall was very, very unsatisfying, with no definitive cause of death. Not long after Shannon's remains were found in the marsh behind Dr. Peter Hackett's house in Oak Beach, Dr. Michael Badden, the respected New York medical examiner who had actually once worked in Suffolk County, made a statement on this raging controversy. Baden told reporters that it was, quote, absurd to think that a woman who weighed not much more than a 100 pounds could thrash her way through the marsh that the police were afraid to walk into. And the circumstances are very impressive that the mother, meaning Mary, is right and she was murdered, end quote. Shortly after Dr. Simmons' child could not come up with a definitive cause of death for Shannon, Dr. Baden was given a chance to prove this theory when he was hired to conduct an independent autopsy by the Gilbert family. So, February eleventh, 2016, Mary Gilbert and her three surviving daughters, including Sarah, appeared at a press conference with John Ray on Long Island, and Ray stated that Dr. Batten had reviewed the evidence and said the findings were, quote, consistent with homicidal strangulation, end quote. Batten reported, while there is insufficient evidence to define the cause of death, there is, quote, no evidence whatsoever that Shannon Gilbert died a natural death, end quote. What did Dr. talk about conclude? To be as accurate as possible, I wanted to confirm some of the information that I was reading. So I went to listen to Lisk, the Long Island Serial Killer podcast, hosted by Chris Nass, who interviewed John Ray. And I'm going to just paraphrase what, what he was telling us. First, the throat has three hyoid bones that form a U-shape with kind of two horns on either side and then the central bone. The horn hyoid bones on either side were missing in Shannon's case, probably due to some kind of animal activity. On the remaining bone, there were rough edges on the bone, one side more than one, and there was a hole, like a drill, where it poked through. In the original autopsy report, this was listed as an indentation Definitely not a hole, and this is a hole, so that that is an inaccuracy. Dr. Batten couldn't explain what caused this hole, but what is significant to Dr. Batten is the roughness on the edges of the highway. He made a report which said that Shannon Gilbert's death is consistent with homicide, consistent with strangling, though he couldn't specifically cite that cause of death. While not earth shattering in terms of the homicide case, it's not nothing either. All right, the other Gilgo Beach victims, Maureen, Melissa, Megan, Amber, they've either been asphyxiated, which is smothered, or strangled. And of other victims that were found, one had underwear stuffed down her throat, which is not quite the same thing either. Just want you to know, too, I highly recommend Chris Nass's List Long Island Serial Killer podcast. I can't begin to duplicate the in-depth interviews that Chris has conducted, so it is really a great place to really dig deeper into all these details. Now, Dr. Bad's report indicated that there's no evidence that Shannon had died of exposure, or a drug overdose, or drowning. The three theories that the Suffolk County PD had publicly shared about Shannon's death before they had actually found Shen's body, if you recall, uh, that's a no-no, by the way. Uh, you don't really talk about uh, how people died before you discovered their body. Ray called the Suffolk County PD's explanations absurd, and younger sister Stevie believes all the bodies found in Long Island are linked. She's angry at investigators but also at potential witnesses who might be hiding information. And at this news conference, Sarah Gilbert said on camera, that, quote, Shannon was my older sister, she is greatly missed. Unquote. Now the day before the bad news conference, the Suffolk County PD said that they did not believe that Shannon's death was linked to the other deaths. Okay. Suffolk's new police commissioner Timothy Sinney, a former federal prosecutor, now reaffirmed that they didn't believe the pattern and circumstances to be consistent with the deaths of the other women. Mr. Sinney also added that authorities wouldn't be excluding any possibilities. On hearing about Baden's conclusions, another statement was issued this time saying the investigating detectives requested to review the report supporting any contrary conclusions reached by Dr. Baden. And yet another follow-up statement followed that Dr. Baden's report, quote, provides no additional information and came to the same conclusion as the Sulphur County Office of the Medical Examiner that there is insufficient information to determine a definitive cause of death, end quote. And at that time, John Ray was annoyed that the Suffolk County homicide detectives had still refused to meet with him and his private investigator to discuss the evidence that they had collected. In contrast, the FBI not only agreed, but met with him and discussed the case. It was also necessary for Ray to file a Freedom of Information Act, a FOIA request, to listen to Shannon's 911 call from the night she disappeared. A decade ago. That is remarkable since the official police line is that her case is unrelated to the serial killer investigation. Yet their official position is against releasing it to Ray because it could impact the current investigation. You cannot have it both ways investigators. Yet they did maintain the quote, we won't exclude any possibilities clause to be fair, but it is baffling and confusing at the same time. What the hell? But, but, finally, on May 7th, 2020, a New York State Appellate Court ruled for the Gilbert family and ordered the Suffolk County Police to turn over the recording and transcripts of Shannon's 911 call. All of this stemmed from a civil lawsuit brought by Mary Gilbert against Dr. Peter Hackett for wrongful death. Geraldine Hart, the then-new Suffolk County Police Commissioner, the city had moved on to New Horizons by now, issued a written statement. Quote, The court has implemented strict parameters to maintain the integrity of this ongoing investigation. We fully expect Mr. Ray to honor the requests sent out in the judge's order, and as such, the department will decline further comment. End quote. Listen, I get it, it's an ongoing investigation, not linked to list as they insist, but it sure annoys the hell out of me that they've been so heavy-handed in protecting their investigation while floating theories about Shannon's death prior to her body being found, they had not even conducted an autopsy yet. So, if you're going to walk the walk, then you better walk the walk and talk the talk too. Finally, on hearing Shannon's nine one one call, Ray concluded that nine one one calls made the day she vanished differed vastly from how the Suffolk police described them in the past, and that there are things on the tape that I believe are extremely important to solving this case. End quote. Ray is referring to an editorial sent to Newsday in January twenty twelve about the Gilbert investigation written by then Sulphur County Detective Vincent Steffen. Detective Steffen wrote, this is all him, In the house at Oak Beach, Gilbert was not about to be murdered. Her demeanor on the tape was calm. You can hear male voices on the tape, and they are calm. At no time during this call was she desperate. From what I heard on the call, Gilbert was not speaking as if she was in danger. Despite this, she decided to run from the house and her driver, whom she relied on to take her back to New Jersey. During the investigation, I interviewed an individual who drove Gilbert to her dates in the past. He said that she would leave houses and apartments in the same fashion as she did in Oak Beach. He described her as being a paranoid person and at times acting irrationally, end quote. Hmm. It's obvious that Ray objects most to this paragraph when he responded with, quote, This letter was pregnant with false statements. The reason why Detective Stefan wrote this letter filled with falsehoods, which are on very key points, is mysterious. End quote. Now retired, Detective Stefan's only comment has been, I stand by my opinions of the tape. That's it. Alright, this whole thing stinks. Either a woman is crying out for help, or she isn't. Cut the self-serving, cover-your-ass crapola. And I really dislike how Detective Stephens writes that Shannon's escort work, quote, dates, unquote. Alright, so we all know that this is about selling and buying sex. His disdain for escorts comes through very clearly. Did his attitude impact his professionalism? If he published this in Newstead for all the world to think, I think it might. Imagine what his guarded thoughts might be, and this is my opinion, detective. Once again, a woman is found dead, and investigation cannot ever be tainted because of employment, lack of employment, or any other status of the victim. That is just unacceptable. There is no hierarchy of expendable victims. There are no expendable victims. They all get investigated and treated with dignity 24-7, period. I also noticed something else as I was researching this, and it relates to this point, murder bookies, so reflect on this one. A Rick Royce article in New York Times on Shannon, February 12, 2016. Prostitute found in New York Marsh in 2011 may have been murdered, pathologist. Versus. An article posted in CNN.com on the same date by Rick Sanchez. Shannon Gilbert could have been strangled. I found it interesting that the New York Times had to identify her as a prostitute, while CNN respectably used the victim's name. Slut shaming is ugly, very ugly, New York Times, calling you out for the salacious headline. I hope you've come a long way in the last five years. CNN? Well done. No garish serial killer in the headlines, no remaining headline, just the victim's name, her identity as a person. Just something I noticed. Alright, so, I don't even know where to begin with this next part of Mystery Continues, but let me plug another podcast. Unraveled Season 1 from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen on the Long Island Serial Killer Investigation. One of the finest podcasts out there that addresses what in hell went on with the investigation side of the murders, and there's no way, again, we can duplicate the in-depth journalism that they've produced. I am staggered by their reveals. So what I'm going to do is just summarize some of the points that I think are significant right up to the latest information that I've researched. So bubble up. Alright, this begins with a David Slew Goliath story, and it starts on December 14th, 2012. A heroin addict from Smithtown, New York, named Christopher Loeb, broke into a black 2008 GMC Yukon and stole a black duffel bag, planning to sell the items to support his habit. A vehicle he has no idea belongs to Chief of Police of Suffolk County, one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the U.S. This is the last guy whose car you want to rob. Inside the car's duffel bag, Chris Lowe finds handcuffs, mace, a gun, gun belt, magazines of ammo, boxes of cigars, in the door, and among other items, sex toys, CDs of adult pornography, and with a pierced lobe to feature a pre pubescent boy on the cover. Kitty porn? Okay, that's just. Criminal and disgusting. This would result in a thunderous fall of a corrupt political chief, our Goliath, who should never have gotten hired, should never have worn sergeant stripes, let alone been the most powerful person in our police department, who is felled by the powerless average guy, our David in the story, Christopher Lowe. Amen to that. This downfall of the chief of police, James Burke who did more to damage and hamper the Long Island serial killer investigation into these homicides than anyone. This is the guy who wouldn't allow the FBI to continue advising assault town detectives in the serial killer investigation and block the FBI access into case files and evidence. Burke denied his Department of Resources that came along with FBI involvement, grinding the investigation to a halt. He also withdrew Suffolk County PD from a variety of other cooperative law enforcement task force. One was gang-related. Burke forced seasoned experienced law enforcement personnel into early retirement, threatening them with demotion if they didn't leave within 15 days. One was chief of detectives, the head investigator on the list case, Dominic Verone. Burke didn't even speak to Verone on his thoughts about the investigation, what leads he had, what he thought they should dig into next. What the hell? Why did Burke do that? Day two of his tenure as chief of police. Why would he undermine the effectiveness of his own police department? We have to conclude that Burke needed to control everything and everyone around him, that that was of paramount importance to keep his cronies in place, and especially to keep his personal skeletons dug deep underground. And it hurt the totality of the investigation and the department he was leading. How many times have we complained about the failure of law enforcement agencies to collaborate? And here, Suffolk County was collaborating until Jimmy Burke. And then this corrupt narcissist severed ties with other departments and organizations to keep his little empire to himself. Commissioner Geraldine Hart would confirm that Burke's actions towards Liszt certainly set the investigation back. So, panicked, Burke realizes he has been robbed of his sex toys, child sex, CDs, backpack, gun, ammo, whatever. On realizing this, he flips out so much he enters the Loeb home during the search that's going on here, tampers with the crime scene, retrieves his duffel bag and other belongings, all, quote, in direct violation of police procedure and protocol, as reported by Newsday. You see, it hadn't taken the police long to figure out who broke in. Chris Loeb is not exactly a world class burglar. And then Burke goes to the police station where Loeb is being detained, and according to court documents, there he is, quote handcuffed, hunched over, manacled to the floor. That Burke shook Loeb's head violently, punched him in the head, body, and attempted to knee Loeb. Knowing that Loeb was a heroin addict, Burke threatened him with a hot shot, which is an overdose of heroin uh, laced with poison. Shackled, unable to fight back, Loeb calls Burke a pervert, which causes Burke to completely lose it screaming, cursing at Loeb, attacking him with a vengeance, until one of the detectives who was there finally says, Hey, boss, that's enough. That's enough. From press reports that I read, the detective who restrained Burke was probably Lieutenant James Hickey. I'm only about ninety nine percent sure. But you know, yeah, probably. Securing his power in this environment of fear that he created, Chief Burke was confident enough to brag about beating Woke to other cops, even at a department event where he, quote, regaled a group of officers with his account of the assault, saying it reminded us of his old days as a young police officer, end quote. Burke went on to call the detectives at the scene his palace guards, taking care of his little empire for him. And then the cover-up began. Their story sure would be, Nothing happened to Loeb. He was never beaten. No idea what you're talking about. And who are you going to believe—the decorated chief of police with a stellar record, or some criminal heroin addict arrested for burglary? So Burke puts pressure on his detectives to lie for him, to accept a fictionalized account of what happened, and that, by the way, is called a conspiracy. Goliath was all powerful. He's untouchable, and he has powerful friends too. The fear was real, and my opinion is this guy is dirt. That's simple. He is using his power to abuse those he's supposed to protect and defend, and it makes my blood boil. But it didn't work. Sometimes David does slay the bigger and more powerful Goliath, and it's going to take some time. But eventually, the feds and the FBI get wind of the assault of load, and they investigate it. Two years and ten months later, Chief James Burke is forced to resign on October twenty seventh, 2015. If reports are correct, it came after Burke was seen crying and sobbing that he'd done nothing wrong at District Attorney Tom Spoda's house. In spite of these weepy protestations, in February of 2016, Burke pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit obstruction of justice and violating the victim's civil rights and was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Oh, the mighty Dufault to Thunders Clause. He should have his child porn charges against me, and no one did. It's my humble opinion. They had a much lengthier sentence. So in 2018, Burke was released to a halfway house, probably in Brooklyn, after serving most of his sentence and then he was released from there on April nineteenth, 2019. He is a broken, pathetic piece of crap today. What is incredible, given the utter amazing amount of corruption that prospered in this department, is that Burke should never, ever have been in a position of power in the first place. Back in 1995, an internal affairs report shows that then-Sergeant Burke was romantically involved with a convicted sex worker and drug dealer named Loretta Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker had a significant number of arrests, including larceny, all of which took place in the precinct where Burke was a supervisor. And Burke claimed to know nothing about Loretta's arrest record, which just defies logic. And in 1995, the Suffolk County Internal Affairs report on Burke substantiated multiple findings confirming that in 1993, then Sergeant Burke had a months-long relationship with the prostitute and drug-dealing convict, and had on one occasion even left her alone in his car with his gun belt and service weapon in the backseat. That he and Rick and Backer had sex in a patrol car at least once. Now, Burke was disciplined as a result, and he lost 15 vacation days. What the hell? He should have been fired. He should have been fired in 1995. But no, this guy is promoted at least twice more, and then he goes on to become Chief of Police. Because District Attorney Tom Spoda protected him. Huh. All right, so, well, why? Why would D.A. Spoda do that? Well, answer. We have to go back in time further, back to 1979. As a young prosecutor, Tom Spoda used the then 14 year old Jimmy Burke's testimony to send three teenagers to prison in a questionable conviction of a terrible, front wrenching murder where 13 year old John Pius was killed by having rocks stuffed down his throat because he'd seen the three boys stealing a $5 motorbike. It is a complicated, highly emotional case with intense publicity. The three teens were convicted of the crime and that triggered a myriad of trials and appeals that spanned well over the next decade. But the point here is that the Spoda-Burke-Cushy relationship began back then with Burke testifying that he had overheard the three teens admitting to killing Pius. Burke was positioned as the star witness for the prosecution, and the kids greased the career of Spoda. Lie down with dogs and get thieves. Oh, question. Who would have had access to James Burke's police file the full file? The current county executive, Steve Ballone, who appointed Burke chief of police. So it's my opinion that Ballone had access to this, knew of Burke's record, and he appointed the guy anyway. Weird, right? Hmm. Yeah. And there's more fallout. So after Burke is sentenced to prison, Tom Spoda. 78 years old, all-powerful district attorney who lifted broke up since his 14-year-old thug, getting a promotion at the promotion and the promotion of the police department. Tom Spode himself is arrested and charged with obstruction of justice and conspiracy. Wait for it. For covering up the beating of Chris Loeb for his protege. Spode's aide, Christopher McCartland, He's also arrested and tried in his role in this whole mess. What is McPartland's job? He was the then government corruption bureau chief. You cannot make this stuff up. Our spokesman for the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office, John Marzulli, he said that the jury found Spoden McCartland guilty of witness tampering, obstruction of justice and conspiracy. After they pressured witnesses not to cooperate with an FBI investigation into the 2012 assault, both Spoda and McCartney were convicted on all charges. After the convictions, Chris Lowe posted on Facebook, quote, Tom Spoda and Chris McFarland are guilty of ruining the lives of so many other families. They are guilty. Now, the new Sulphur County Police Commissioner and former FBI agent, Geraldine Hart, said of the conviction of Spoda, The very people charged with upholding the law were the ones who were found guilty of assisting James Burke in his attempt to get away with his crime. Instead of being leaders and standing up for justice, they did their best to manipulate the system and everyone who stood in their way. Though Spoda and McCartland were convicted in 2019, sentencing is still not set to take place until August 20th, 2021. Huh, that's a big red mountain to me. Why the delay? We're not the only ones questioning this two-year delay in sentencing either. In Newsday, a letter to the editor, which was published on July 5th, 2021, read, They not only broke the law, they also conspired with a police officer to ensure their criminal conspiracy would go undetected and unpunished. And if I'm convicted in a federal court of any garden-variety crime, not one that undermines the justice system. Would I be in jail awaiting sentencing for nearly two years? As a former prosecutor, I can assure you this type of delay in sentencing is outrageous. The saying, justice delayed is justice denied, doesn't disappear when a crook is convicted. Agree with you, Mr. Former Prosecutor. This delay undermines our whole legal system. It is hard enough to get the bad guys in the first place, then convict them without reasonable doubt. But to have the court meandering along for two years without sentencing the guilty? Come on now. All right, they've blamed some of the delays on coronavirus. Hello? They managed to sentence Joseph James DeAngelo, the Golden State Killer, during the coronavirus pandemic. Is New York State so inept that they cannot find a place to hold? an hour-long hearing so U.S. District Court Judge Joan Azarek can sentence these guys? Spoda and McCartland, they want their sentencing to be in person, not online. Aw, the widow convicted criminals want a live sentencing hearing. You know, I don't really care what they want. I really don't care what they want. Tough nookies. I don't really believe that these prima donnas get to delay, delay, delay and wind to the coin about what they want. And shame on Judge Azrak for even entertaining this nonsense. Let's get justice rolling, Your Honor. Sentence the criminals in person, telecourt, whatever, on August twentieth, twenty-one. No more delays. No more delays. Or you know what? I might tell you how I really feel about it next time. (laughs) Now, what kind of sentences can we expect? All right, federal guidelines call for sentences. Uh, 57 to 71 months, which is like five to six years in prison. However, Assistant U.S. Attorney Lara Gates wrote a sentencing memorandum that, in light of the egregiousness of their crimes, Spota deserves a stiffer sentence of more like eight years, which is like 96 months. And since Spota decided to cover up civil rights abuses, we are definitely rooting for the eight years. So stay tuned for our update in a few weeks when they are finally sentenced, God willing. By the way, who took Spota's job? Former Commissioner Timothy Sini. And name we know, Timothy Sinning. He seems like a standard guy, but he is a guy on the move, climbing upward. We'll see what happens with him. However, listen, there is a lot more to say about the political corruption and the old-boy networking that's occurred in Sulphur County. And as you know, we are all about accuracy and accountability, and there's a lot more that we can delve into here. But it is about lost girls, even if it is second cast. So we're going to circle back now to Gilbert Attorney John Ray. We're not done. He's not done. He's never left Shannon's case. He's still hanging in there trying to figure out what happened. So December 2016, Ray issued a statement uh, an escort named Leanne had sworn out an affidavit that she and James Burke had partied in 2011, had rough sex at a location in in Oak Beach, and Leanne also indicated that many people and sex workers were present and drugs, including cocaine, were used. She personally saw James Burke using cocaine. Ray went on to say that this smacked of the arrogance of the highest member of the law enforcement community, thinking he had license to do anything he wanted, including something illegal, with an investigation into the deaths of so many women at the hands of a serial killer, which was underway. While this is not a smoking gun, it does make you really, really wonder what other behavior Burke was involved in. According to Ray, Leanne is willing to take a lie detector test. This story dovetails with what we learned from Unraveled, The Long Island Serial Killer Program on Discovery Plus, which is based on the podcast that I mentioned with Alexis Linklater and Lily Jensen. They interview a young woman called Jane Doe on this program, who went to an August 2011 party on Oak Beach, attended by James Burke, when he was the chief investigator with uh, the Sulphur County Investigator's Office. So he's not chief of police yet. Jane Doe is adamant that her identity be obscured because she still fears a retribution from Burke and his Silk. And she says she saw some people walking in and out of the bathroom with money, and she realized, oh, these are young escorts hustling older guys for money. She describes this as a very hedonistic environment to be in. Jane Doe saw Burke doing cocaine at the party, and according to an affidavit she filed, yes, she did too, Jane observes him roughly pulling a young woman by the hair to the ground because he doesn't have a high regard for women, according to Jane Dell. Burke, on meeting Jane, thought she was a sex worker. She says she's not. Jane told Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter that they had sex in the bathroom, consensual sex, but it was very aggressive. There was oral sex involved and when she began choking, tearing up, called him to stop. She said it took him a while, but he did stop. Afterward, he used derogatory language, he called her a dirty whore, treated her like garbage, and then broke through money at her and walked away. It did not sit well with her the rest of the night. Very disturbing. I do not think Jane Doe and Leanne are the same person. I don't. Now, recall that the Sulphur County police officer, now County Legislator Rob Trotta, says that back in the day, Sergeant James Burke asked Trotta if he could get him a snuff film. That is a film that depicts a woman being murdered, which heightens the viewer's sexual release. In a recent new episode season one, episode eight from Unraveled. Jensen and Linkletter, revealed that new information has come to light. Rob Trotter revealed that after the podcast went live, a retired cop came to him and said, in the late 90s, Jim Burke asked him if he could get him a snuff film too. So it appears that this was kind of a common thing of Burke going around his police colleagues and trying to get a snuff film. So he is a very kinky, twisted, violent guy who's into merch sex. Huh. All right, so what is happening with the List case? In January 2020, the Suffolk of County PD released images of a piece of evidence that they believe was handled by the killer, an embossed black leather belt that bears the initials WH or HM, because it can flip over, either way. I felt that it was custom-made for someone. Could it have serial killer DNA on it? I don't know. A year or so later, Commissioner Geraldine Hart resigned from the department to take a job as a director of security at New York City University. She served in Sulphur County about three years, and I'm kind of sorry she left. She told me today that I wanted to leave this department better than when I got here, and I hope I have accomplished that. I believe she made a real effort to enact change and to reverse some of the corruption and poor practices that led the list to atrophy the past two decades. However, Commissioner Hart was never given the full use of her office, tied up by political bullshit, preventing her from doing what needed to be done. We wish her well in the future. She's a woman with integrity, and according to Inflator and Jensen's Unravel, Rob Trotta said that his opinion was that Hart was stuck between a rock and a hard place. She had to take her orders from the county executive. She wasn't allowed to hire her own assistant. This person was hired by county executive Steve alone. And remember, listen for that name in the future as things go rolling along here. However, there may be a new ally for the remaining Gilberts and anyone else wanting the Long Island serial killer case to move forward. On June 28, 2021, New York State Senator Phil Boyle, who represents Long Island's 4th District, where Google Beach is located, held a press conference in Oak Beach where he called for a special prosecutor. Boyle said, quote, The people need to know that everything that can be done was done, end quote. Well, we have to agree. But, I was more interested in what PIX11 reporter Mary Murphy reported as an update. During this newscast, Murphy said Senator Boyle, who slammed County Executive Stephen Malone, the government official who appointed Chief Burke, the guy who kicked the FBI out in the Gilgo investigation, and he is starting to take some heat for his role in this whole fiasco. Mary Murphy tells us that Steve Ballone called Senator Boyle's call for information a political charade Understand, Boyle and Boulogne are in opposite political parties, so there is no love lost here. To briefly rehash, a lot of the political hijinks went on, and it continues to go on. It was Boulogne who officially put Burke in power, claiming he wasn't aware of any impediments concerning Burke. Did Malone ask if there were any skeletons in the closet? Did Bologna examine the files that he likely had access to regarding Burke, which is my theory? Or did Boulogne just continue to grease the wheel of the politically connected guy like he was supposed to do? Will Boulogne be held accountable for that? What did he know about Spota? Who knew what, when? Now, I did happen to catch a radio show, a breakdown with Frankie McKay on June 14, 2021. When Frankie was interviewing Guy Malone, a Long Island resident insurance broker, Guy is the ex-husband of Heather Malone. Now, prior to their divorce, Heather was having a long-term affair with former chief of police James Berg, actually, like for seven years when she was married to Guy. Guy caught on in 1999 and there was an ugly divorce and so on and so forth. So, to follow on, Guy was married to Heather, they get divorced, and he's later married to Linda. Linda and first wife Heather were very good friends at one point. It turns out that Linda, who is now deceased, saw the news story on the belt and recognized the WHHM belt. Remember the belt we mentioned, the new evidence released in January 2020? That belt. As besties, Linda and Heather used to go up to Demetrio's Furs in St. James, Long Island, a favorite furrier that Heather loved. Linda knows that Heather would have custom items made for her, put her name on this, initials on that, purses, belts, whatever. So on December 7th, 2020, Linda sees the Newsday article by Michael O'Keefe on the belt, sees it, recognizes it, and knows it belonged to Heather Malone. H. M. Stunned, Linda tells Guy. Now Guy is telling this to radio host Frankie McKay, and he says Guy says he called the police and he spoke to a detective Buckhite. Guy was even given a case number, number one three four dash H three five eight eight seven, and Guy was told he would be called back, etc., etc., etc but has never heard back on the police regarding this identification of his belt. And this is why Guy is on the radio in June 2021 sharing this information. Here is a photo of this belt on our blog at com. Check it out. Huh. So I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, Guy Malone. Guy Malone. Wait. I'd heard this name before, and then I remembered where I'd heard it. I'd heard it on Unraveled. <laughs> we keep circling back to Unraveled. Way not to plug my own podcast, right? But it's true. When Billy and Alexis were interviewing Rob Trotta, he speaks of the guy and Heather Malone divorce, and how during depositions for the divorce, Jimmy Burke, who's the other man, was asked if he'd ever been called a prostitute. And Burke says, No. No, never. Now, we know this isn't true. Burke lied under oath because we know all about his relationship with Loretta Rickenbacker. For a police officer to lie under oath is cause for dismissal. So this is serious. And this got out. So the story about this is supposed to appear in Newsday. It was all set and ready to go to print. And it disappeared after some mysterious phone call quashed it. Billy Jensen is asking Steve Malone about this phone call and killing the story. Malone says he has no idea what Billy's talking about and to paraphrase, he says, well, you know, there were times with the communication office pushed back on a story but I don't ever remember being on the phone with Newsday. Nope, I know nothing. And the editor of Newsday was called and asked but he never responded. To the Unraveled podcast, either, and the mystery continues. My mind. So let's let's recap this a little bit. We have a power-driven, paranoid nut like James Burke, sexually aggressive guy who likes snuff murder porn, possibly kitty porn. Uses escorts for sex, treats them like dirt, calls them demeaning names. With multiple sources confirming this, women allege he used drugs regularly. Attends wild parties in Oak Beach. Burke is involved with Heather Malone for, you know, 10, 12 years, at least according to court documents and her ex husband. And the WHHM belt evidence is released, but is identified by the late Linda Malone as belonging to her ex best friend, Heather Malone, says Guy Malone on the radio. Million dollar question. Has Burke been investigated for being the Long Island serial killer? Has he been cleared? I have found nothing to indicate he has or hasn't. You think if he'd been cleared, law enforcement might say so. Now, why would you do this disgrace jerk any favors? Because it's not about him. It's about the families of these victims wanting justice. I hope if they have cleared, Jimmy Stesboberg, they'd say so. And with Guy Malone's allegations that the W.H. H.M. Bell belongs to Heather Malone. Is Senator Boyle making certain the Suffolk County PD are on this tip in July 2021? The mystery continues. Murder bookies, the mystery continues. I, I cannot think of a more poignant title for this particular episode. Mind you now, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And James Burke's attorney, John Marangolo, states that, quote, the allegation against my client does not warrant comment. Innocent until proven guilty it is the mainstay of our legal system, and I do believe in it. But I also believe we turn over every single rock. Another development in the Gilgo case came in May 2020, when Jane Doe number 6 was identified as Valerie Mack, a 24-year-old young woman who, like her sisters in death, was working as an escort. The difference is that Valerie was working in Philadelphia. Previously known as Manorville Jane Doe, Valerie Mack had been dismembered, and her remains were found separately 11 years apart. On November 11, 2000, hunters found her naked torso in an area of the Housing Manor Road in Manorville, New York. It is believed her body was based there in September 2000, and in 2011, Valerie's head, hands, and right foot were found near Manorville Beach, when investigators were looking for Shannon Gilbert and stumbled upon the serial killer body dump. Valerie's family had last seen her in the spring or summer of 2000 near Port Republic, New Jersey, where she occasionally used the name Melissa Taylor. While her family members had remained private, I can say this much. One of them was a student of mine taking my serial killer class. She contacted me right after Valerie was identified. I listened to her talk and I gently answered as many questions as I could, and our conversation will remain confidential. All I will share further is that it is a terrible shock when something like this comes to a family, and they deserve the privacy to cope in their own way without judgment of any kind. As with the others, Valerie was a daughter, a sister, a niece, a mother, was loved and missed in the years apart when they didn't realize that she had been murdered and were hoping that she would come home when she was ready. DNA genetic genealogy was used to identify Valerie Mack, and we hope it will be used in the other unidentified cases as well. Hey, maybe it'll identify the serial killer himself. You never know. One occult case dating back to 1956 is solved. As faith, murder bookies, the technology is getting better and better. So, April 20th, 1996. People walking along the beach near Davis Park had the shock of their lives when they discovered a human leg wrapped in plastic. She had come to be known as Fire Island Jean Doe, and the case went cold. It wouldn't be until April 11, 2011, that her skull was located off Ocean Parkway near a bird sanctuary not far from Maureen, Melissa, Megan, Amber, and Long Island. In an effort to help identify her, DNA was done and matched with the legs. What is significant about these remains is her right leg has a three and a half inch scar about mid calf and a one inch scar on the ankle area. The left leg has a two inch surgical scar with an adjacent suture scars on the outside ankle area. So, this might indicate that she had some kind of ankle surgery and she also had painted red toes. This is one of the unidentified victims that we can only hope maybe someone will recognize something with the ankle scars, the ankle surgery. Think back, maybe you can help. The torso of Jane Doe number three, also known as Peaches, due to the tattoo on her left breast, it was found on June 28, 1997, at Hempstead Lake Park by hikers. Peaches' remains were stuffed in a black plastic bag inside a green rubber made container. top, her midsection was a maroon towel and a dark-colored pillowcase adorned with flowers. It was estimated that Peaches had died three days before her discovery. Investigators said that Peaches was a 20- to 30-year-old black woman with a surgical scar indicating that she had had a cesarean section. In 2016, DNA was used to reconnect another partial skeleton found near Ocean Parkway in 2011 to her other remains. This DNA was also able to tie to Baby Doe's remains, believed to be a toddler girl, but is technically still listed as unsure, to Peaches, her mother. Baby Doe was found east of Cedar Beach, Long Island, on April 4, 2011, geographically miles away from Peaches. Both mother and toddler were wearing similar jewelry. They are listed in NamUs, a federal database used to help identify Jane and John Doe's nationwide. Why did no one report a mother and toddler missing? The mystery continues. Another victim was found dismembered in 2003, Jessica Taylor. Her torso was located in July in Manorville, New York. The killer made an attempt to mutilate her tattoo, a red heart with angel wings that said, Remy's Angel, partially gouging it off her hip. This tattoo proved crucial in identifying Jessica. She had disappeared just weeks before her nude body was discovered by a woman walking her dog off a utility road off Paisley Manor Road and the Long Island Expressway. Other body parts were found May 9, 2011. Jessica's skull, hands, leg, and forearm and DNA confirmed that these were connected to the 2003 torso. It was Jessica who formally linked the dismembered victims of Manorville with the homicides at Gilgo Beach. She was working as a sex worker near the Port Authority bus terminal in New York, only recently arriving from Washington, D.C. when she went missing. Note, Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor are not related, even if Valerie did occasionally use the name Melissa Taylor as an alias. John Doe, number 8, or Asian male, is the last official victim of the Long Island serial killer and was found in proximity to the other victims at Gilgo Beach. He's between 17 and 28 years old, approximately 5 foot 6 inches tall, with slight build. He had poor dental health, missing top-bottom molars, and one front tooth, and is thought he'd been missing his teeth for a lengthy period of time prior to his murder. He may have suffered from a musculoskeletal condition that affected how he walked. Dressed in women's clothes, we aren't the only ones that suspect he was probably trans and working as a sex worker like the others. His cause of death is fairly straightforward. One forced trauma to the skull, according to then-Commissioner Richard Dormer, who was interviewed by Chris Ness. The theory is that the killer thought he was making arrangements with a female and had a burst of anger when he discovered his escort was male. The authorities estimate he may have been dead between 5 and 10 years when found. There are sketches, jewelry, and other items that may help identify these does. Please take a look if you think you have any information that could help identify them. It's time. It really is. Please, think hard. All right. Recall the reporter Mary Murphy from PIX 11 we had just mentioned? Senator Boyle isn't the only subject that she reported on. Mary Murphy also reported that a nurse from Long Island told her that since 2016, she has spoken to the FBI four times about her ex-husband, a Suffolk County attorney, about his relationship with politicians and trips to Atlantic City. Atlantic City, huh? Now, immediately, Mary Murphy adds that there were four sex workers found dead in Atlantic City in October to November in 2006. Now, I believe that law enforcement denies any connection between the AC sex worker murders and the Long Island homicides, but maybe not. This isn't the first time a connection has been suggested, and Mary Murphy is certainly offering hypothesis of a link to the murder of Kim Raffo. Scho- Light discovery of Kim Raffo's body in a dream ditch that runs between the Atlantic City Expressway and Black Horse Pike in Egg Harbor, New Jersey, led to the discovery of remains of other women on November twentieth, two 2006, that of Barbara Brader, Molly Jean Diltz, and Tracy Ann Roberts all located approximately 320 feet apart. They were all found in varying stages of decomposition, indicating they had been killed at different times. Kim Raffo had been in the water less than 36 hours. Their heads were all pointing east, all were clothed but were bare feet, and three of the four were blonde. Investigators believe they were most likely strangled. In February 2021, a spokesman for the Atlantic City Police Department, said in this case, quote, We continue to communicate with law enforcement agencies, including the Atlantic City Police Department, regarding the Gilgo Beach homicide investigation. At this time, there is no link between our case and the Atlantic City case, End quote. I would love to know what Mary Murphy knows or thinks she knows. All right, a little bit about the Atlantic City women who were killed in a five-week span in 2006 by the Eastbound Strangler, as he's sometimes called. Since this possibly related case came up, I believe these women deserve to be acknowledged and we're going to do so. Two have connections to Pennsylvania, where Tara and I live. The first to die was Molly Diltz, who is from Blacklicks, a western Pennsylvania town, about an hour from Pittsburgh. That once centered about a booming coal mine that fueled the area's economy vibe. Today, the corporate hub consists of a post office and a gas station and a homey town where basically everyone knows everyone else. A tomboy, a special ed student, Molly dropped out of high school her junior year. This coincided with the beginning of Molly's troubles about five years before her murder. Her mother died, and to make the loss all the worse, Her aunt died the same week in an accident. Shortly thereafter, her stepbrother was found shot to death. From trauma to trauma to trauma, this poor girl. And Molly was 15 years old at the time, a critical age for someone who was once 15, myself and has raised two daughters. Molly began to drink and smoke heavily. When her father, Werner, found out Molly was pregnant, he took in her baby boy to raise with the help of the rest of their relatives. Jeremiah had been conceived when his dad, Jeremy, was home from the army. However, Molly and Jeremy were not really in a stable relationship. In 2005, Molly was involved in an assault, which pushed her into rehab. By the beginning of 2006, she and a boyfriend were living in a motel. By March, they had disappeared, only to be arrested for drug paraphernalia. When Molly failed to show up in court, an arrest warrant was issued. By now, Jeremy was out of the military, and Molly and he moved in together, trying to establish something substantial so she could be more involved with her son. Jeremy admitted he wasn't in love with her, but it would be good for their son. Shortly thereafter, Molly disappeared from Pennsylvania, and six weeks later was found murdered in Atlantic City, her English bulldog tattoo helping to identify her. Of Molly, her uncle Steve Taylor told CBS News, she was warm and loving, caring kid. She had a lot of good to spread to the world, and it's just a shame. Kim Raffo was the daughter of Robert and Joan Raffo, born and raised in Kenorsey in Brooklyn, New York, and raised with her sister Marie. Her parents eventually divorced, and Joan and the girls moved to Florida, where she married her second husband. In Florida, Kim worked hard and married Hugh Liger bought a lovely home, and had two children where she was an active member of her local PTA association, as reported by NewJersey.com. An affair with a chronic addict broke up Kim's marriage, triggering an addiction to cocaine that really became entrenched. Her ex, Q, moved himself and the children to Ocean City, New Jersey, so Kim and her abusive boyfriend moved to Atlantic City, with Kim seeking a new life. However, things went rapidly downhill from here with Kim working as a waitress and finally as a sex worker as her addiction siphoned her strength and her very essence. Haggard, a hollow shell of who she had been, addiction was a huge problem that dominated her life when she was killed. Barbara Breeder was raised in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania, which is about 45 minutes north of Philadelphia with her parents, two sisters, and a half-brother. Dad was a school counselor, Mom stayed home with the four kids who attended Catholic schools. Barbara attended community college and then Penn State, ultimately going to work for her mom running the Santa Fe Trading Company, a chain of shops. A good daughter. Barbara was, was known for helping her mom by taking her on shopping trips for clothing and that kind of thing. Barbara met boyfriend Stanley and they would have a daughter. In 1988, Stanley was trying to help Barbara who was complaining of menstrual cramps, and he offered her a pain pill. Stanley had been prescribed the medication following surgery and had gotten addicted, and he did warn Barbara about this. But it didn't take Barbara long to need another one, and then another one, and then another one. And when the doctor ended Stanley's prescription, they both turned to heroin. Over the next 18 years, life slowly fell apart. In 2014, Barbara gave up custody of her daughter and was doing sex work on the streets of Atlantic City. Her sister Francine claims Barbara was the victim of domestic violence and struggled with the death of her father. Francine told 48 Hours that, quote, she ended up self-medicating herself with drugs, end quote. Stanley went to prison for burglary and drug charges, and when he heard Barbara was turning tricks in Atlantic City, he was simply stunned. After the family hadn't heard from Barbara, they reported her missing, and she was found in the drainage ditch with the others. Tracy and Roberts grew up in Bear, Delaware with her mom, Joyce, and recalls how she loved to ride her bike and skateboard as a scrappy girl who loved to hang out with her friends. At 14, Tracy began experimenting with drugs, and at 16, she dropped out of high school, taking a job in a telemarketing firm. When she was 18, she began a relationship with co-worker Brian, who lived in South Jersey. They would have a baby girl together, and after the birth of her daughter, Tracy enrolled in the Harrison Career Institute, getting training as a medical assistant. The family moved into their first home, a townhouse, and this was absolutely the happiest time in Tracy's life. When the doctors she worked for moved, Tracy couldn't find other work. Unemployed, they fell behind in the mortgage, foreclosure followed, she and Brian broke up under the strain. Tracy began using cocaine heavily at this point, and it is so tragic that the 23-year-old woman with the tiny butterfly tattoo on her back was found murdered, leaving her daughter without a mom. John DeAngelis, then captain of the Atlantic City Police Department, told CBS News that, quote, everybody that knew her said she was a really nice, pretty, young person that had her whole future ahead of her, end quote. Today, the Egg Harbor Police Department is quiet about this case, as is the Atlantic City Police Department and the New Jersey State Police. However, this much has come out. Remember, Kim was found only 36 hours after she was killed. DNA was found under Kim Rathlow's nails, and it does belong to another person. But this could come from an incidental contact, and it had nothing to do with her death. The DNA did not match anyone in law enforcement databases, which remain voluntary. Hmm. The day prior to her death, Kim had a customer, a doctor from North New Jersey, who was staying at the then-Trump Taj Mahal. On November 19, 2006, about 5 a.m., Rafa left him to go buy drugs and will return shortly. When she didn't, the doctor called her cell phone several times. No response. When the police followed up on this, the phone records confirmed the doctor's story. With today's technology, we know that the calls to Kim Raffo's cell were routed to a cell tower along Black Horse Pike, close to the dump site where the bodies were located. But was she dead or alive at that point? We just don't know. Like Lisk, this too remains an unsolved case, and the mystery continues. Where are Cherie Gilbert and Stevie Smith today? From our research, we've learned that Sherry has taken up her mother Mary's mission to find out what happened to her sister Shannon, with Stevie's support and assistance. John Ray, the family's attorney, continues his role in the legal front. Of Mary, John Ray told People Magazine that she was broken down and depressed, and she was a poor, poverty-stricken person. She was a single mom trying to raise kids and grandkids. She did what any mother would try to do for her kids. I just can't not do it. That's what Mary would have wanted, as she pursued this case relentlessly. End quote. And that concludes second cast, lost girls. The mystery continues, and it certainly does leave us with so many unanswered questions. Only time will tell. There's so much more spiring out on Long Island, and we promise to update you as developments occur. Join us next time for part one of trace evidence. The Hunt for an Elusive Serial Killer by Bruce Henderson. This is an incredibly well written book with all the details true crime lovers enjoy sucking you into the story as the killer evades over and over, leaving the police following a bewildering number of leads to find the killer of the women who went missing along Interstate 5 near San Francisco, California. We hope you will be reading with us. If not, we are happy to tell you the story and offer you some analysis as we go along the way. Thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at Jill and Tara at com. We would love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts can be heard. We are all over now. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us and to grow the podcast. And we appreciate your feedback. Until next time, murder bookies. Happy reading. Written and produced by Tara and Jill. All rights reserved.